I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode where we're covering Chapter 10 of Lisa Murphy on Play. But first, we are going to play a game of like it, love it, leave it. So hang in there with us. Maybe it'll make you chuckle. Maybe you'll learn something. And as always, feel free to send us a DM if you feel really opinionated about something we talk about. (laughs) Okay, so Laura, why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay, like it, love it, leave it. Theme park, water park, virtual reality park. Okay, love it theme park okay like it water park leave it virtual reality park (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i love a good theme park and if you go to the right one it's kind of a it could be a mix of a water park and a theme park you know disneyland has the log ride you get a little splashed on that one or legoland has a water park yeah that's right and you just go on the rides that have water and you get splashed and it's like, whoa, crazy. Yeah. But I, I think that's that's the most fun. The water park is a little much for me. It's like the cleanliness level, a little disturbing. Like, I don't know what's happening. All the bodies in the water kind of freaks me out. And then so many people in bathing suit. It's a very exposed situation. <laughs> yes, yes. And I never know, like, what should you do about footwear? (laughs) Should you wear, like, water shoes that you wear when you're going in the ocean or lake? Or do you go barefoot? You're just walking all around barefoot? Yeah. Not sure. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to put these in order. And I think I'm going love a water park. Okay. Like a theme park. I'll leave a virtual reality park. But I will say the last time I was in Las Vegas, the whole group I was with, we all did a virtual reality ride together where we were on like a dinosaur adventure. It was so fun. But a whole day of that, you'd be so sick. Oh my gosh. But I grew up in Fresno and in the summers, it would get up over 110 and we would always have season passes to the big water park there. My little 
pale body would be covered in a giant t-shirt okay. and always like neon bright water shoes. Okay, water shoes. You know, obviously I would not wear a water shoe now. I'm too fashion conscious. <laughs> I would go barefoot. I would barefoot. go barefoot if I were to go to one now. I haven't been in a lot of years, but I love them. And I think in terms of cleanliness, you just got to let it go. You just got to go, you know what, today I don't okay. think about this stuff. I'm just going to have fun, stand in these long lines and get really wet and have a bunch of... Yeah, my family used to go when I was younger in the summer too. And I have some really fun memories. But I would never go on the really big, really scary slides. Oh, I can't really with that. But I love the ones where you grab... I would like grab my sister. We would get one of the ones where you get a floaty that has two people that sit in it and you go down. It's really fun. So... Yeah, yeah. All right. So that was mine. Now what's yours? Okay. I have to preface this. Nobody get offended. Okay, that's all I have to say about this before we get started. California, Florida, Texas. All right. I love California. I like Texas. And I'm going to leave Florida. And I have reasons for all of these because I live in California. I grew up here. Love it. I was born in Texas. Wow. I have not been back since I was two. But that's where I was born. So I got to say I like that special place in your heart. <laughs> and I've never been to Florida. I hear stories. I love the Real Housewives of Miami. Uh, <laughs> I've never been there. I would like to go to Florida. Yeah. But if I have to say an order, I guess that's what I'm going to go with. But what are you going to do? Okay, I am the exact same. Love California, like Texas, leave Florida. Uh-oh. We live here in California. Love it could do without it sometimes, but I think it's one of the most beautiful states. Texas, I've spent a lot of time there. One of my best friends lives there and the people are pretty friendly and it's just a really fun time. So I really like Texas. The culture is fun. Um, Florida, I have been there and I will tell you, I think I'm allergic to Florida and I think I've told you this before. (laughs) I was so physically sick when I was there. I think from the humidity. I don't know. Okay. But I was there for another friend's wedding. And I was there probably in like late June. Probably not the time you want to go to Florida with the weather and stuff. Yeah. But I just had a headache every day. I felt horrible. And I came home and I told my grandma about it. My grandma's like, I always feel that way when I go to Florida. And I was like, oh, my God. I thought it was in my head or that I was like constantly dehydrated, but I really think my body, it was just not acclimated to the weather there. So we live in a super dry area. Like even when it's super hot, it's the driest of dry heats out here. The same in New York in the summer, the humidity. Like I'm not a tropical flower. I'm (laughs) like a desert flower. I'm an arid cactus flower. I'm not like a tropical. (laughs) Yes, you flourish in this dry heat. Okay, well, I was kind of picturing that I would live in a retirement community in Florida, but I guess I need (laughs) to go and see if I can survive in Florida in the humidity before I make any decisions like that. Oh, girl. (laughs) I know we probably have some listeners who live in Florida and I'm just like not saying anything bad about Florida. I'm just saying like, yeah, no, just saying it didn't really agree with me. That's all. And one time I did go there for WrestleMania, which was the time of my life. All right. So on that instance, it was cool. No, it's not about Florida. It's about the weather. It's not about the people. Precisely. (laughs) Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for sticking with us and hang in there. When we come back, we're going to be discussing chapter 10, 
all about art and creativity from Play by Lisa Murphy. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. S. O. P.? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Okay, so chapter 10 is all about art and creativity. And Lisa opens up the chapter by explaining that art is done in preschool as a receipt for childcare. So that's pretty much the purpose of it nowadays is to show parents, look, your child did something at school today. And this is a problem because a lot of children don't choose to express themselves through art. And creation is not really limited to the visual arts. So some children would prefer to build something with blocks, but maybe they end up getting coerced into making something today that just goes along with what the teacher had planned, which is, you know, a paper plate activity or some kind of art project. And some children choose to create by maybe linking together pieces of the train track and coming up with a story for each different part. Or maybe they mold Play-Doh sculptures or you know, want to play in the dress up corner, like that's also creative, but it's just not something that's tangible and can be sent home. So if you want, you know, with smartphones being so common today, you can just snap pictures of the children creating in the way that best suits them. And then you can send the pictures to parents. And that might even serve as a conversation starter. You know, I my daughter's in preschool and we have an app where we get all these updates from the school. And I love to look and just see what she was doing that day and then talk to her about it when I see her. I feel like it gives her the opportunity to share too. Her second cause for concern is that art can be really messy, which sometimes gets in the way of teachers truly doing the projects that they want to do. 
So there might be concerns about keeping the carpet clean or children's clothing that can stand in the way of fun, messy art projects and result in cookie cutter cutting and pasting sort of projects. So she recommends you ask yourself two questions. One, who is the art being done for? Is it being done by the children for the children? Or is it being done for parents, facility owners, or directors? What is also important is to give children adequate time, appropriate materials, and teachers who value the process of being creative. So she says that there's an advantage to art that children make and take the lead on versus making identical projects. And she also suggests giving children tape so that they can tape up their artwork at their eye level in a place that feels right for them. And I have to tell you, I'm probably going to bring this up multiple times as we discuss this chapter, but uh, my daughter is really a budding artist and she loves to draw and it produces so much work. Like, I think this is something you don't realize when you're like, they start kind of bringing the projects home from preschool and you're just like, oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. But then it just there's more and more and more and you feel guilty about throwing yeah. any of it away. And then I'm like on Pinterest trying to find appropriate storage <laughs> solutions yeah. for all of these projects. And then now we'll talk about this later, but now she's doing more like figurative drawing and that's even hard for me to get rid of those. So anyway, she likes to get the tape and just tape things up on the walls. <laughs> so there's always weird. There's just like yarn taped to my walls. <laughs> uh, whatever she wants to do. It's really cute and I love it. So I always feel like it's sweet. She really has a unique vision. Uh-huh. <laughs> we have these, um, they're really little baby dolls. They're probably like five inches tall. Okay. And I have these like glass lanterns on our dining table and she put two baby dolls. She put one in each of the lanterns. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of creepy. Like it just looks a like a little baby in the cage kind of. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> but I just leave them there and I feel like, you know what, yeah. this is her vision, you know. <laughs> Some might call her a prodigy, interior decorator prodigy. So Lisa has some tips for establishing a child-centered process-oriented program. And she does acknowledge that, you know, it can be very challenging and time-consuming to make your whole program sort of child-centered and especially when it comes to art, but it is worth it. So her first tip is that each project will be unique. This means that you work on prioritizing process over product and that there will be no bulletin boards covered in identical art projects. And she really emphasizes art doesn't ever have to look like anything. And we really need to let children engage in their own process. So her second tip is that art cannot be forced. And she gave this poignant example of being at a center that, quote, did holidays. I don't know, really. I guess they celebrated the holidays at school. They were making cards for Mother's Day with melted crayons. And all the children had made them except for this one child named Patrick. And the director came in and wanted to know why he hadn't made a card. And she explained, you know, He's really into Legos, and she was just going to take a picture of him making a Lego tower and tape it to the card for his mom instead. But the director said, no, he needs to do it, and they kind of went back and forth. And then eventually she broke two of her own personal rules and interrupted the child when he was engaged with his Legos and asked him to do something he didn't want to do, which was make the card for his mom. So he went over and put... She said he went bam, bam, bam with the melted crayon, just like three dots on the paper and then was like, I'm going to go play with my Legos. Bye. And ran away. 
And then a month later, they were doing the melted crayon art again. And Patrick was seeming kind of anxious. He was kind of like pacing around the tables. And eventually he asked, are we going to be making these for our moms? And Lisa kind of explained like, no, you can make it for anybody you want to. And that was his permission that he needed. And then he went over to the warming tray and made 20 different pictures. And the last one was his own name, which he had written. And then he picked them all up and walked over to his cubby and said, these are all for me. So I thought that was kind of interesting because initially I didn't think that it was that he had to make the art for his mom that was the problem. But I guess him saying like, these are for me and asking if they have to make it for somebody else. I kind of was like, oh, interesting. It is kind of weird to force kids to make something for someone. It just doesn't seem like it's teaching kids to give and create for other like in a genuine way it's like no you have to make this for your mom right it's mother's day you have to make this (laughs) like right it was sad but i'm glad he got to make all those pictures for himself yeah me too and her creative tip number three is the smaller the child the bigger the paper so small children need to go big before they can go small and she recommends using just giant pieces of butcher paper or old sheets which I was like whoa Lisa that's like really fun (laughs) imagine if you'd been able to paint on a sheet when you were little that would have been so exciting yeah kind of naughty feeling (laughs) yeah yep she said you know children aren't the ones who are concerned about bringing their work home to put it on the fridge that's like adult thinking really children's joy is in the process of creating she also talks about some tips to get free paper if you want to be kind of like crafty get it you want to be crafty about it (laughs) (laughs) so she says you can call the local newspaper i don't know if this is a relevant tip today i mean sadly newspapers are kind of dying but you can call the local newspaper and ask if you can pick up the end rolls you can call a local architecture firm see if they want to donate their blueprints or paint on newspaper you can ask your local office supply store if they'll donate old desk calendars at the end of the year Maybe contact your local print shop to see if they have scrap paper that's big enough for you to use. So then she says you can send a thank you note with pictures of the children using the paper. And not only is it just like a courteous thing to do, but it almost always guarantees a repeat donation. When I worked in schools, one of my favorite things to do, I always had those rolls of just white, the Melissa and Doug rolls of white paper where you can just roll out and it's not that wide. It's not like butcher Mm -hmm. paper all the way. It's like half of that. But if you work in a school, you have access to butcher paper that you can just go tear off a big piece. Yeah. But the kids really like it when you just slap a giant piece of paper down on the that covers the whole table and just put a bunch of crayons and markers or whatever in front of them. And then they just spend the whole day or the whole session doing whatever they want on there. Kids love doing that any age. Yeah. And I think that's probably a fun way for maybe in our tick session that kind of feels like drill and kill that's kind of boring it's a little bit of a mindless activity working on like your s sound so it's kind of like Mm -hmm. here color keep your hands busy and we'll just drill on s you know yeah that's fun her tip number four is don't just use paintbrushes anymore she has a really long super fun list of different things you can use as paintbrushes some examples are golf balls toothbrushes noses that's wild (laughs) (laughs) Lufa, I thought that was really fun. Snails. Oh my god. This world. Do you have the snail crawl through a little puddle of paint and then it's like I guess. And then <laughs> is the snail okay? 
<laughs> you know, as an aside, one time when I was in high school, we had an, a science class and we were doing an experiment, having snails crawl over different surfaces, okay. trying to decipher if the surface affects the speed. Okay. And so it was like a smooth table. And then there were different grits of sandpaper. Oh. And I was always just like, that is really horrible. <laughs> Can we give snails a break? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> Justice for snails. <laughs> I mean, they're out there crawling on the sidewalks. Like, that's just as gritty as a piece of sandpaper. So. <laughs> yeah, they're just, their little slug bodies are so tender. <laughs> um, some other fun ideas are dog toys, plastic toy cars, magnets, brooms, and sponges. I think I'm going to probably mention this a couple times, too. And I know I mentioned it in a previous episode, but my mom was a preschool teacher. And we had some really fun times doing art with really strange things. We would do prints with fruit, oh, potatoes, yeah. can cut a potato in half and like carve it into a stamp, which we would do. Yeah, you take the half the potato and you carve maybe a triangle or something into it. And then you stamp it, it was so much fun. Yeah, cutting the apple for the star side and then using that as a stamp really fun. Yeah, I remember she told me we had a lot of fun with it until some ants got into one of our projects. <laughs> I don't know. We would use like food too, macaroni, of course. Yeah. We also did a lot of really fun melted crayon projects, which when she was talking about those cards, I had so many fun memories of just taking like a cookie sheet, putting a piece of foil on it and putting it on your stove on the burner on like low and just having a bunch of scrap crayons uh -huh. and you just draw and they melt and it is so fun. I think I want to just do that myself, Ooh. like as an art therapy. Like yeah. adult coloring. Yeah. Your daughter's like, what are you doing, mom? You're like, get out of here. It's mommy time. <laughs> this is for me. <laughs> she also discusses some creativity killers. So we're going to go through all of these. Killer number one, creativity killer number one is surveillance and hovering. So she says hovering gets in the way of the creative process. She says, just give the kids some materials the time to explore, and then literally back off. And yeah. she recommends designating part of the room as a creation station where there's always art materials available for children to use as needed. And I have a creation station in my house. I got a really fun, it's like a wall pegboard from Ikea with mm -hmm. different like cups and stuff. And I put it by a little table for her. And I just put all kinds of fun crayons some like oil pastels. Target has a really great selection of really fun like glitter markers and paper. And she will just go and sit down and just bust out a, a picture, whatever she wants to draw. She doesn't need any urging. And I think when these things are just freely available, that's when you get some like really cute stuff from them. So. Yeah. Oh, but we're, I don't think we're even supposed to say it's cute. We're just supposed to say like, do you need more stuff? But we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. This chapter really got me thinking. <laughs> I know about every interaction you've ever had with a kid over their art. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Creativity killer number two is evaluation. So when facilitating creative expression, we want to develop intrinsic motivation and not put pressure on children to produce what other people want or what is pleasing for teachers. So Lisa gives an example of one time she was in a center, probably just observing and there was a little girl who was just painting on an easel pretty much the whole time. So Lisa just, she didn't comment on her painting. She just kind of asked, do you need more materials? And she would say yes, or she would say no. And that was it. And she painted for a while until the teacher came over and told her, oh, your painting is so beautiful. You should be so proud of yourself. Your mom is going to love it. And the little girl took black paint 
poured it all over the painting, walked away, and just never painted again the whole time Lisa was there. Stone cold. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, what is going on? What a reaction. But, you know, she killed the creativity. Yeah. Don't comment on it. This is so. tough. And we know we have those little people-pleasing kids that we work with. So that transition where when the kid goes, what do you think? I'm trying to think, like, do they say, do you like this? She mentioned that. Like, if they say, what do you think? Or they ask you or they say it's for you. Mm -hmm. I think you can say, like, oh, I love it. But I don't think you're supposed to just, like, randomly offer comments. Okay. So we're learning. Yeah. Creativity killer number three is about control and over control. So she says that excessive micromanagement is frustrating for an adult and a child. You shouldn't battle with the child if they don't want their name on their artwork, and it's best to just ask them if they want their name on it. If they say yes, ask where, write it down, and then move on. So don't make models, samples, or examples for the child. Rhoda Kellogg, a child art expert, says that adults who encourage copying work and forbid or discourage spontaneous scribbling could harm the child's development in learning as well as art. So children who have frequent opportunities to draw without a lot of adult interference learn faster and increase their cognitive ability more than if they were denied that opportunity. And then she paraphrased this poem on page 69, which I loved. I'm going to read it out loud. When you draw it for me, cut it for me, paste it for me, put it together for me. All I learn is that you do it better than me. And I thought that was like... I know. Wow. I know. Okay. I feel like I'm kind of like (laughs) down this episode because I just am running through all the art projects I did over the years where I had my model. I was made sure I got there, had enough time that morning for me to give them the example of what we were doing to create something. And it's like, oh, what was I doing? Yeah. I do remember one time... During the fall, I had this torn paper owl activity and I just tore up tons of different like shades of brown construction paper and I just had it all in a pile. And then I did have my example and I had cut out like beaks and stuff for eyeballs and stuff. And everybody's looked kind of similar, but I did love it because they all looked different because you just there was no guide. You just made your owl out of your just gluing on the torn pieces of paper. And then there was one kid who was so hilarious and cute. And it was obviously my favorite. And we called it the deconstructed owl because none of the pieces were touching. The beak and eyes were off to the side, maybe not even in the right configuration. You know, it was so adorable. But next to all the other owls, you still knew it was an owl. You're like, oh, I love that one. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cute. I know. Well, don't beat yourself up because how can you know, you know? Yeah. I'm thinking, I mean, I walked away with a little guilt too. I can't say I incorporated a lot of crafts into my speech therapy, working with older kids and at the elementary school level. I think I like it more for preschool kids, but I mean, all kids like art. I mean, with my own child, I was just really feeling like, wow, I got to change some things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're really confronting some things about ourselves right now. <laughs> yes. I mean, okay, let's talk about this. Creativity killer number four is restricting choice. So if a child is painting and they're like, I need a fly swatter and you can, you should just go and get the fly swatter for them. So she's like, you know, there are a lot of excuses you could make, but ultimately, if it's accessible, just go get it so they can indulge their creativity and expression. And if you don't get it or you're like, no, we'll do it tomorrow or not right now, 
it just allows you to be the boss. So saying no just lets part of us feel that we're in charge. And we kind of worry like we're letting them get away with something or they're going to be spoiled or demanding because they're getting their way. But in reality, like it's just a paintbrush. Yeah. Don't be a laminated lady with your keys around your neck and all your supplies right. locked up in the cabinets. Right. <laughs> I felt kind of bad about this one. I don't know. I think we get sometimes so caught up in like our day and it feels like it's going to be messier or it's going to just make things a little harder. or It's not what you had planned. And it's just so easy to say, no, let's stick to the activity. And this is a good reminder you know, just say yes. Yeah. And that's what she talked about. She said, it's important to say yes as often as possible. So yes keeps things moving, which deepens exploration and supports innovative thinking and problem solving. And a good question to remember is what part of this can I say yes to? I love that. Yeah, me too. Just what part? It's not like you have to say yes 100%, but maybe there's something in the question from the child that you can say yes yeah, to. Definitely. Creativity killer number five is pressure. So she urges against pressuring children to create art that is above their years and ability level. Rhoda Kellogg, that same art expert I just mentioned, has identified 20 basic scribbles that serve as the foundation for childhood artistic creativity as well as for writing. Children first need to make basic random scribbles before being able to make shapes and then moving on to combining shapes. And once that happens, we see the creation of suns, humans, and flowers, eventually rainbows, buildings, houses, and then transportation objects like cars and trucks. So things that look like something can only be drawn really once the foundation has been set in place and drawing is just combining shapes and children need to be allowed to cycle through those scribbles in order to develop those skills. And she has the examples of the scribbles at the end of the chapter and it is so fascinating. I know. I loved it. <laughs> so I'm moving right now and I was going through, I have a huge portfolio of my daughter's artwork and just yesterday before I even read the chapter, I was sorting through all of her artwork. What can I save and what can go? And it was really fun watching her art evolve and then reading this and like seeing the humanoid that's just like the circle with the arms and the legs. I love that <laughs> one. So My niece is really artistic. My mom has books in her kitchen, you know, like cookbooks and stuff. And then she has a lot of bookcases. I know when they were moving, same as you, they were moving and they were going through like what to keep, what to throw away. She kept sending us pictures. If you open any random book, there will just be like all these little curly cues. Oh. My niece would just go through books and just like on every page be scribbling, you know, you just see all oh. her little her little curly cues across from when she was three that or four so years cute. old. It's like, how can you throw away that book? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It is gut-wrenching, I'll tell you. If you want to be yeah. a hoarder, just go through that and you will be. <laughs> yeah. Creativity killer number six is lack of time. So children need lots and lots of free time to savor and explore an activity. And she shared that she posted a sign on the door of one of her classrooms that said, this is a child's place and we move at a child's pace. And I loved that so much. So when you rush a child or have them clean up before they're finished, it sends a message they might not be even able to start an activity because they're not going to have time for it to come to a natural close. So when you give the child a strong message that what they're interested in takes a backseat to clocks and schedules, they're going to act that way. And making time is crucial as we start paying attention to cultivating creativity. Creativity killer number seven is measurable outcomes equal funding. So the first thing that gets cut from a budget is art, drama, and music. 
And as our culture has placed an overemphasis on testing, the arts are pushed out or given the back seat. With the adoption of state standards, No Child Left Behind, Common Core, it's just a lot of overemphasis on language, literacy, and math. So a real absence of other subject areas such as the arts. Creativity killer number eight, which was coined by Lisa, is baby gap syndrome. So she describes this as little man is what she calls him. (laughs) Little man comes to school in designer shorts, matching shirt. His hair is always like perfectly in place with gel and his shirt kind of stays tucked in all day. And he has a breakdown if any mud gets on his pants or paint on his shirt and frequent hand washing if he gets his hands dirty. And there is a girl version of this called Little Miss. And it's the same like fancy dresses, fancy shoes, can't really be active because of her clothing. So Lisa really emphasizes the importance of sending children to school in play clothes, or at least clothes that you won't get worried about if they get paint or mud on them. And she goes on a rant really in this chapter about parents who care more about clothes than about a child's ability to explore and play, of course. But I do understand the parents struggle a little bit because like even my daughter, she has friends in her class who wear really fancy dresses to school. Yeah. And then she wants to do the same thing. But I just send her in ones that I'm like, this can be her fancy school dress. Like if it gets stained or whatever, it just is what it is, you know? Yeah. I can't remember. I can picture shopping as a kid. I always had just jeans or shorts, a plain t-shirt. Like I just went to Mervyn's, got some Keds. I feel like I was always in play clothes. I don't think I ever wore anything fancy. No. But also reading the book made me so nostalgic. I could picture putting on backwards dresses. Yeah. This thing where you went and got a frock for art, you know, and it'd be like this old tattered clothing. Yes. And it made me I had this weird feeling where I was like, oh my gosh, the cover up thing. Now I know they have special smocks. But ours were just like thrift store dresses (laughs) that we wore backwards. (laughs) That is so fun. Yeah. I mean, hearing you say that, that was like jogging my memory too. Yeah. So Lisa recommends that if this is a problem at your school, what you should do during orientation is show pictures to parents of what children actually do during the day so that they can understand that if a child is not dirty when they come home, then the teacher is probably not doing her job. So there seems to be a real gap in understanding between parents and teachers and parents need some extra help in understanding that getting dirty is really a part of a child's job. Creativity killer number nine is dressing the part. So this is about what teachers are wearing. So Lisa says, save the nightclub clothes for locations where that's appropriate, not the preschool. (laughs) So her preferred outfit for work, which I love, is overalls. She says it's the best outfit for a preschool teacher. There's tons of pockets. You can move in them. It's not a fashion contest. And I love overalls. I have many pairs. And I was like, when she said that, I was like, Adrian is an overall lady. (laughs) So I know you're going to love that. I haven't had overalls in a long time. I don't know why I didn't get some recently when they came back. You know, gosh, you know, free people has a really great pair. I'll send you a link. It's like, I feel like they fit everyone great. They're kind of long. They would your tallness and they're really cute. Yeah. When I read it, I was like, I kind of want to be overall lady. It's the goal. But I also want to be scrubs lady. You get to wear scrubs at your new job and I'm so jealous. Guess <laughs> what? I get to wear scrubs at my new job, any solid color. Oh, so fun. I could get like light pink. I could get purple. I <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I'm really excited. <laughs> Okay, but whatever. Lisa says, whether or not wearing fancy clothing 
in the name of professionalism, like the question is, is that actually a way of cleverly circumventing the necessity of providing meaningful, creative, messy, child-centered play? So if somebody at your work is demanding that you look professional, maybe they're just trying to get off the hook for messy play. Yeah. She talks a lot about how being a teacher is not defined by what clothing you wear. She feels like clothing requirements are supposed to promote professionalism, which encourages parents to treat the teachers with respect. But she says teachers really need to be able to move around, clean up spills, change diapers, be thrown up on, run after kids, roll on the floor. Like you need to be moving, you need to get messy. And if you're really a professional, then your professionalism will present itself during daily interactions with other adults around you and the children. So she's got a lot of thoughts on that. And I was with her all the way. Absolutely. So at the end of the chapter, she had a couple different lists. And one of them was just like some questions to think about. So things like how do I make time for creating in school? And how do I make time for creating in my own life? Are there children in my class who are more non art creative? How can I make the environment more welcoming for them? Does my school suffer from baby gap syndrome? How can we make a small step toward dealing with that if that's the case? What kind of creativity killers do I struggle with the most and why? What steps can I take to be more confident when pointing out developmental connections between being creative and a child's cognitive, language, literacy, social, emotional, physical development needs? I love this chapter. I thought it was really informative, definitely got me thinking, and hopefully it's inspiring everybody out there to let the children play. Yes, I'm going to be searching for maybe there are SLPs out there who do more of this type of free, creative not such structured creativity, because <laughs> is that even creativity? Right. SLPs, it makes our lives a lot easier to do really structured art activities, craft activities where everyone looks yeah. the same. And it would be interesting to find who's out there doing really fun, creative, you know, really letting their kids just run with it. And how does it work? And how do they work in speech and language targets? I know, something to think about. But I think that there's a way to make speech therapy more play-centric. And you just have to get a little creative with it. So thank you for hanging with us, everyone. I hope you had a lot of good takeaways from this chapter. Join us for our next episode where we talk about chapters 11 and 12 from Lisa Murphy on play. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.